Chapter 6 On the Terrace of the Sorolus Now that night and darkness had come, so Madatta and I took ourselves, clad in shadow-coloured clothing which we gathered up well about us, our waists firmly belted and with swords in our hands, to the western side of the palatial house of the goldsmith, where the terrace that we sought was perched, crowning the steep and rocky side of a deep ravine. With the help of a bamboo pole that we brought with us, and by the dexterous use of a few existing projections, we climbed the face of the rock at a spot veiled in deep darkness. We swung over the wall with ease and found ourselves on a spacious terrace, decorated with palms, asoka trees, and magnificent flowering plants of every description, all now bathed in the silver light of the moon. Not far away, beside a young girl on the garden bench, and looking like a visitant from the heavenly spheres in her wonderful likeness to Lakshmi, sat the great-eyed maiden who had played ball with my heart. At the sight I began to tremble so violently that I was obliged to lean against the parapet, the touch of whose marble cooled and quieted my fevered and failing senses. Meanwhile, so Madatta hastened to his beloved, who had sprung up with a low cry. Seeing this, I also pulled myself together so far as to be able to approach the incomparable one. She, to all appearances surprised at the arrival of a stranger, had risen and seemed undecided as to whether she should go or stay. Her eyes, meanwhile, like those of a startled young gazelle, shot sidelong glances at me, and her body quivered like a tendril swaying in a gentle breeze. As for me, I stood in steadily increasing confusion, with disordered hair and tell-tale eyes, and was barely able to stammer a few words in which I told her how much I appreciated the unhoped-for happiness of meeting her here. But she, when she noticed my great shyness, seemed herself to become calmer. She sat down on the bench again and invited me, with a gentle movement of her lotus-like hand, to take a seat beside her, and then, in a voice full of tremulous sweetness, assured me that she was very glad to be able to thank me for having flung the ball back to her with such skill that the game suffered no interruption, for, had that happened, the whole merit of her performance would have been lost, and the goddess, so clumsily honoured, would have visited her anger upon her, or would at least have sent her no happiness. To which I replied that she owed me no thanks, as I had, at the very most, only made good my own mistake, and, as she did not seem to understand what I had meant by that, I ventured to remind her of the meeting of our eyes, and of the ensuing confusion which caused her to fail in her stroke, so that the ball flew away. But she reddened violently, and absolutely refused to acknowledge such a thing. What could have confused her in that? I imagine I answered that from my eyes, which must have rivaled flowers in full bloom then, such a sweet odour of admiration streamed forth that for a moment you were stupefied, and so your hand went beside the ball. Oh! "'What talk is this of yours about admiration?' she retorted. "'You're accustomed to seeing much more skilful players in your hometown.' From this remark I gathered with satisfaction that I had been talked of, and that the words I had used to Somadatta had been accurately repeated. But I grew hot and then cold at the thought that I had spoken almost slightingly, and I hastened to assure her that there was not a one word of truth in my statement, and that I had only spoken thus in order not to betray my precious secret to my friend.' But she wouldn't believe it, or made as if she didn't, and in speaking of it I happily forgot my bashfulness, grew passionately eager to convince her, and told her how, at the sight of her, the love God had rained his flower doubts upon me. I was convinced, I said, that in a former existence she had been my heart's companion. Otherwise, how could such a sudden and irresistible love have arisen? But if that were so, then she must equally have recognized me as her former beloved, and a similar love must have sprung up in her breast also. With such audacious words did I beseech her, until at length she had her burning and tearful cheek upon my breast, and acknowledged in words that were scarcely audible that it had been with her as it had been with me, 
and that she would surely have died had not her foster sister brought her the picture. Then we kissed and caressed one another countless times and felt as if we should expire for joy, until suddenly the thought of my impending departure fell like a dark shadow over my happiness and forced a deep sigh from within me. Dismayed, Varsity asked why I sighed, and when I told her of the cause, she sank back fainting on the bench and broke into a perfect tempest of tears and heart-rending sobs. Vain were all my attempts to comfort my heart's beloved one. In vain did I assure her that as soon as the rainy season was over I would return and never again leave her, even if I had to take service as a manual labourer in Kosumbi. Spoken to the winds were all my assurances that my despair at the separation was not less than her own, and that only stern, inexorable necessity tore me away from her so soon. Between her sobs, she was scarcely able to utter the few words needed to ask why it was so imperative to go away as early as tomorrow, just when we had found one another. And when I then explained it all to her very exactly with every detail, she seemed neither to hear nor to comprehend two syllables together. Oh, she saw perfectly that I was longing to get back to my native town where there were many maidens more beautiful than she who were also far more skilful ball players, as I myself had acknowledged. I might affirm, protest, and swear whatever I chose. She nevertheless adhered to her assertion and ever more copiously flowed her tears. Can anyone wonder that I soon found myself lying at her feet, covering the hand that hung limply down with kisses and tears, and that I promised not to leave her? And who could then have been more blissful than I when Varsity flung her soft arms around me, kissing me again and again, laughing and crying for joy? It is true, she now instantly said, There, you see. It was not at all so necessary for you to travel away, for then you would unquestionably have had to go. But when I set myself once more to explain everything clearly to her, she closed my mouth with a kiss and said that she knew that I loved her and that she did not really mean what she said about the girls in my native town. Filled with tender caresses and sweet confidences, the hours flew by as if in a dream. And there would have been no end to all our bliss had not Somadatta and Medini suddenly appeared to tell us that it was high time to think of returning home. In the courtyard at Somodatta's, we found everything ready for my setting out. I called the overseer of the ox wagons to me and, bidding him to use them in utmost haste, sent him to the ambassador with the information that my business was, I was sorry to say, not entirely settled, and that I must, as a consequence, relinquish the idea of making the journey under the escort of the embassy. My one request was that he would be so good as to give my love to my parents, and with that I closed my message. Scarcely had I stretched myself out on my bed in order, if possible, to enjoy a few hours' sleep when the ambassador himself entered. Thoroughly dismayed, I bowed deeply before him while he, in imperious voice, asked what this unheard-of behaviour meant. I was to come with him at once. In reply, I was about to speak of my still unfinished business, but he stopped me in midstream. What nonsense! Business! Enough of such lies! Do you suppose I would not know what kind of business is on hand when a young puppy suddenly declares himself unable to leave a town, even if I had not seen that your wagons already stand fully loaded, harnessed up with the oxen in the courtyard? Of course, I now stood scarlet with shame and trembling, completely revealed in my lie. But when he ordered me to come with him at once, as already too many of the precious cool morning hours had been lost, he encountered an opposition for which he was plainly not prepared. From a tone of command, he passed to a threatening one, and finally was reduced to pleading. He reminded me that my parents had only decided to send me on such a distant journey because they knew I would perform it in his company and under his protection. But he could have put forward no argument less suited to his purpose, for I at once realised 
that then I should have to wait until another embassy went to Kosambi before I could return to my varsity. No, I would show my father that I was well able to conduct a caravan alone through all the hardships and dangers of the road. It is true that the ambassador now painted all of these dangers in vividly gloomy colours, but all that he said was spoken to the winds. Finally, in a great rage, he left me. He was not to blame, he barked, and I must smart for my own folly. To me, it seemed as if I were relieved from an insufferable burden. I had now surrendered myself completely to my love. In this sweet realisation, I fell asleep and did not wake until it was time for us to take ourselves to the terrace where our loved ones awaited us. Night after night we came together there, and on each occasion Varsity and I discovered new treasures in our mutual affection and bore away with us an increased longing for our next meeting. The moonlight seemed to be more silvery, the marble cooler, the scent of the double jasmines more intoxicating, the call of the coquilla bird more languishing, the rustle of the palms more dreamy, and the restless whispering of the asokas more full of mysterious promise than they could possibly have been anywhere else in the world. Oh, how distinctly can I still recall the splendid Ahsoka trees which stood along the whole length of the terrace and underneath which we so often wandered, holding each other in close embrace. The Terrace of the Sorrowless, it was called, from those trees which the poets named the Sorrowless Tree, and sometimes Harsees. I have never seen such magnificent specimens anywhere else. The spear-shaped sleepless leaves gleamed in the rays of the moon and whispered in the gentle night wind and in between them glowed the golden, orange and scarlet flowers, although we were as yet only at the beginning of the Vasanta season. But then, brother, how should those trees not have stood in all their glory, seeing that the Ahsoka opens its blossoms at once if its roots are touched by the foot of a beautiful maiden? One wonderful night, when the moon was at its full, I stood beneath them with the beloved cause of their early bloom, my sweet Varsity. Beyond the deep shadow of the ravine we gazed far out into the land. We saw the two rivers before us wind like silver ribbons away over the vast plain and unite at that most sacred spot which the people call the Triple Union because they believe that the heavenly Ganga joins them there as a third river. For by this beautiful name they call the wonderful heavenly glow which we in the south know as the Milky Way. And Varsity, raising her hand, pointed to where it shone far above the treetops. Then we spoke of the mighty Himalayas in the north, whence the blessed Ganga flows down, the Himalayas whose snow-covered peaks are the dwelling place of the gods, and in whose immense forests and deep chasms have given shelter to the great ascetics. But it was with even greater pleasure that I followed the course of the Yamuna to where it takes its rise. Oh, I called out, if only I had a fairy ship of mother of pearl with my wishes for sails and steered by my will, it would carry us upon the swell of that silver stream upward to its source. Then Hastinapura would rise again from its ruins, and the towering palaces would ring with the banqueting of the revellers and the strife of the dice-players. Then the sands of Kurukshetra would yield up their dead, there the great Bhishma in his silver armour, over which would float his long white-braided locks, would tower above the field in his lofty chariot, and rain his polished arrows upon the foe. The valiant Pagadatta would come dashing, mounted on his battle-drunk bull-elephant, the agile Krishna would sweep with the four white warrior steeds of Arjuna into the fiercest tumult of the fight. Oh, how I envied the ambassador his belonging to the warrior caste when he told me that his ancestors also had taken part in that never-to-be-forgotten encounter. But that was foolish, for not only by descent do we possess ancestors, we are our own ancestors. Where had I been then? 
probably also there among the competents, for although I am a merchant's son, the practice of arms has always been my greatest delight, and it is not too much to say that, sword in hand, I am a match for any man. Varsity embraced me rapturously and said, I must certainly have been one of the heroes who still live on in song, which one of them, of course, we could not know, as the perfume of the coral tree could scarcely penetrate to us through the sweet aroma of the asoka blossoms. I asked her to tell me something of the nature of that perfume of which, to tell the truth, I had never heard, for indeed I found that fantasy, like all other things, blossomed far more luxuriously here in the valley of the Ganga than it did with us more arid folk up amongst the mountains. So she related to me how once, on his journeying through Indra's world, Krishna had, at the martial games, won the celestial coral tree, and had planted it in his garden, a tree whose deep red blossoms spread their fragrance far around. And she said that one who inhaled this perfume would remember in her heart the long, long past times of former lives, long since vanished. But only saints and holy ones are able to inhale this perfume here on earth, she said, and added almost roguishly, and we too shall, I fear, hardly become such. But what does that matter? Even if we were not Nala and Damayanti, I am sure we loved each other quite as much, whatever our names might have been. And perhaps, after all, love and faith are the only realities, merely changing their names and forms. They are the melodies, and we the instruments upon which they are played. The vena is shattered, and another is strung, but the melody remains the same. It can sound, it's true, fuller and nobler on one instrument than on another, just as my new vena sounds far more beautiful than my old one. However, whatever is the case with us too, we are both splendid instruments for the gods to play upon, from which to draw the sweetest of all music. I pressed her silently to my breast, deeply moved as well as astonished at these thoughts, profound and strange. But she added, and smiled gently, probably guessing what was on my mind, Oh, I know. I really ought not to have such thoughts. Our old family Brahmin became quite angry on one occasion when I hinted at something of the kind. I was to pray to Krishna and leave the thinking to the Brahmins. So, since I am not to think, but am only allowed to believe, I will believe that we were, really and truly, Nala and Damayanti. And raising our hands in prayer to the Asoka before us, in all its glory of shimmering blossom and flimmering leaf, she spoke to it the words which Damayanti, wandering heartbroken in the woods, used to the Asoka. But on her lips the flexible verses of the poet seemed to grow without effort and to blossom ever more richly, like a young shoot transplanted into hallowed soil. O sorrowless one of this heart-stricken girl, hear the anguished cry. You, so well-named heartsease, bring the peace of your peace to me. Your blossoms, all-seeing, are the eyes of gods, your whispering leaves their lips. Tell me, oh tell me, where my heart's beloved wanders, where is it my cherished Nala waits? And she looked on me with love-filled eyes, in whose tears the moonlight was clearly mirrored, and she spoke with lips that were drawn and quivering. When you are far away, and you recall this scene of our bliss, imagine to yourself that I stand here and speak thus to this noble tree. Only then I shall not say Nala, but Karmanita. I locked her in my arms, and our lips met in a kiss full of unutterable feeling. Suddenly there was a rustling in the summit of the tree above us. A large, luminous red flower floated downward and settled on our tear-bedewed cheeks. Varsity took it in her hand, smiled, blessed it with a kiss, 
and gave it to me. I hid it in my breast. Several flowers had fallen to the ground in the avenue of trees. Medini, who sat beside Somodatra on a bench not far from us, sprang to her feet and, holding up several yellow asoka blossoms, came towards us, calling out, Look, sister, the flowers are beginning to fall already. Soon there will be enough of them for your bath. You don't mean those yellow things, exclaimed my mischievous friend. Varsity may not, on any account, put them into her bath water. That is, if her flower-like body is to blossom in harmony with her love. I assure you, only such scarlet flowers as that one which Carmenita has just concealed at his heart should be used. For it is written in the golden book of love, it is called saffron, yellow affection, when it attracts attention but then later fades away. It is called scarlet, however, when it does not fade but later becomes only too apparent. At the same time he and Medini laughed in their merry confidential way. Varsity, however, answered gravely, though with her sweet smile and gently but firmly pressed my hand. You are mistaken, Somadatta. My love has the colour of no flower. For I have heard it said that the colour of the truest love is not red, but black. Blue-black, as Shiva's throat became when the gods swallowed the poison which would otherwise have destroyed all living beings. And so it must always be. True love must be able to withstand the poison of life and must be willing to taste the bitterest in order that the loved one may be spared. And from that bitterest it will assuredly prefer to choose its colour rather than from any pleasures, however dazzling. In such profound fashion spoke my beloved Varsity that night under the sorrowless trees. <laughs>